0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. And uh, today's guest is someone like when I was looking at the calendar a few days ago, I was like, "How have we not done this?" <laughs> We've, I've, I feel like I've been fangirling for like Aww. two two years, and then we met a year ago when you moved to Vegas. Yeah. We're both in Vegas, and uh, that was it. We yeah, <laughs> haven't connected much. since. So, um, yeah, just introduce yourself a little bit. Like, give us just a thirty second little backstory, and then we'll dive deep.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, my name is Isami, and I'm originally from Japan, um, and then recently moved to Vegas, and then there's been a billion moves in between there. But um, I grew up super um, strict, fundamentalist, Baptist. Um, I still identify as Christian, but have re-evaluated a lot of things um, since leaving where I grew up in. Um, a lot of it was kind of being pushed out, yeah. But then also realizing that some of the things, a lot of the things, actually that I grew up thinking were okay um, or not, yeah. Um, and then you know, hearing a lot of people's stories and other survivor stories made me realize what I grew up with was definitely not okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, I'm kind of in that process of still learning and unlearning a lot of things. So yeah. that's where I'm at right now.
0: Well, you describe yourself a lot as like growing up in like a fake missionary family. Yeah. And like, that's a, when you read that it's interesting <laughs> and you can pull some context out of that. Yeah. But when you say that, what do you mean? Like describe kind of your home life, you know, I know that's a broad <laughs> topic, but, but when you, when you talk about just in the ministry perspective, what yeah. version of Christianity were you seeing? Cause even fundamentalism, when someone says that Ooh. there's a lot of different layers to it.
1: It's very multifaceted, of course. I'm right. like trying to figure out how to explain this. Um, that doesn't take about eight hours. Um, so, just growing up the way I did, my parents had somewhat of a ministry until I was about 15. And
0: yeah. then
1: after that, they figured out a way to do absolutely no work yeah. or just enough to take photos and don't do anything else and still get paid a full-time salary. Sure. So that's what I was raised with. Now the home was very abusive even before then. So some of my first memories are of abuse. I don't remember a life before that at all. Mm. Um, when I say that the church um, that I grew up in was um, toxic, I mean it was very controlling, manipulative. Um, abuse towards women was okay. As long as there was some sort of explanation, maybe they weren't obeying their husband or, um, if a woman was abused, it was always because of the way she was dressed. It was because of something that she did. The blame was always on the victim. So that's the type of environment that I grew up in. And I would say it was a very, um, it's tough because I don't want to lump all missionaries in this category. I've met some wonderful people who are there to serve their community, who um, are there to help people, who who genuinely love every single person they come in contact Mm -hmm. with. And I think that was not the example that I was given growing up. Um, A lot of what I was given was very colonized Christianity. And what I mean by that is um, even down to things like wearing pants. And I know that's a huge hot button subject um, with churches because is it is it, do women wear pants? Do women not wear pants? That type of thing. Um, but when it was brought to Japan with that fundamentalist mindset, um, a lot of the missionaries that came over to Japan were enforcing this because of American traditions. So mm-hmm. they were saying things like um, the hippies in America wore pants as a form of rebellion in the 60s. So sure. then they pressured that on to Japanese Christians saying that you must wear a dress to church. Well, we never really went through that. We did have a movement, but Japanese women were wearing pants in World War II. Yeah. And prior to that, um, it's part of their their culture. So um, what I was given was a very whitewashed version of Christianity, mm. as well as a very toxic version of it. Um, yeah. And of course, I've learned later on that none of those are okay. Um, but that's that's what I grew up with. And that's what I thought Christianity was.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm always fascinated hearing it because it's the reason that I'm always, you know, people get mad at me for one of two things. It's always yeah. like you're too aggressive or they get mad at me because I go too soft on somebody. And it's always and I'm I'm sure you get the same feedback like call it a cult, do this, yeah. or don't make it sound like a cult because it was your version, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think the breakdown for me is always did the person who was being abusive know they were being abusive mm-hmm. and also did they actually believe what they said they believed mm-hmm. because there's you know some people like jack hiles like i'm convinced did not believe what he said mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people that follow jack hiles that did believe what he said and they acted in abusive ways because mm-hmm. they were following his steps mm-hmm. when you look back at your parents to the best of your knowledge do you think they did believe even if it was wrong or their belief system was right. bad yeah. do you think they actually believed it in the beginning Or was it always like, this is an easy way to get some power and money? That's
1: a great question. I think at one point it did have good intentions. Um, I genuinely do. And I know that might sound like I have like Stockholm syndrome or something, like protecting what they were doing. But I think when it first started out, they had genuine intentions. And the reason I think that is I do remember them seeing, or me seeing them um, try to help the community. Um, try to be present in the community or help other families out i saw that as a kid even though Mm -hmm. abuse was still going on in my home i still saw that and then as i got older i think a lot of it came from um anger issues that my dad had that was not um cared for i know there were a lot of things that he went through that um he never really worked out and there were other missionaries that he was working with and they ended up getting into fights and they pretty mm. much split up. So that happened when I was about 13 and then everything kind of just went downhill from there. Yeah. And then at 15 was when they just figured out they didn't really need to do anything. Yeah. So I think it started out with pure intentions and then it just, it got very bad.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and and you don't have to go into detail yeah. on this, but when you talk about abuse mm-hmm. too, because again, that's a, you know, there's people talking about, you know, physical abuse. Uh, it sounds like with the anger issues, I'm assuming there was physical abuse and, and things like that. Was it purely that? Was there sexual abuse or was it something that was, you know, he would get really angry and maybe throw something or or be physically abusive?
1: So with my dad, um, there was physical abuse from both parents. Mm-hmm. Um So I would say the abuse was physical, verbal, and spiritual from both parents. The sexual abuse for me happened with um, our church pianist. Okay. Um, Now, just kind of like looking back at it as an adult, like from a kid's perspective, you would think, oh, like this is terrible. If I tell my parents, they're going to protect me, right? That's common sense. We would think that. Sure. And I thought that as a child, um, and I actually told my mom what was going on with a sexual abuse and sometimes it even happened in front of her, but she um, refused to protect me. Um, And I I think a lot of it was, she might've been scared to tell my dad because of his anger issues. So my dad actually never knew, but also at the same time, my innocence was being exchanged out for free piano lessons for myself and my two siblings. So there was um, an exchange happening for my innocence starting at age nine So that's um, what I went through as far as sexual abuse is concerned. Um, It was not with my parents. It was with another member in the church.
0: Gotcha. And I mean, nine is such a, on our business podcast, we always go back to like, tell us about when you're in like middle school or like nine years old. Because it is, as much as you can't recognize that version of yourself now, like you look back and go like, what was I at nine? (laughs) It is when you start becoming you. Like, you know, and maybe that's not true. I mean, you're always you but it's when you start having independence a little bit you're running around you're playing you're figuring out what you like and dislike what did it do for you seeing this thing of feeling like you're being exchanged feeling even if you couldn't put the words to it then like to to go to your protector and say something's happening and then nothing Mm -hmm. being done about it what did that do for you in terms of your faith or your your family life
1: well um when i did tell my mom Um, she, and and this is why I wrestled with this whole, like blaming myself for years. She actually did sit in on a piano lesson once Mm -hmm. (laughs) just to prove that I was lying. Um, and then of course, later on, some of the abuse happened in front of her. To me, I felt like I couldn't trust myself. You know, I, I was telling the truth. I was telling her what was happening and, You know, the, the one person who's supposed to believe you, your own mom doesn't believe you, or I'm I'm realizing now she did know what was going on. Like, how, how do you not know? You know, how do you not know when you see it happening in front of you? And then your daughter tells you, you know, what's going on and, um, you refuse to tell your husband about it Mm -hmm. because you're afraid of his, you know, what's going on at that point. There's no excuse. Um, so looking back now, I understand what that is. I'm even understanding, and and this was the hardest part for me to kind of accept as an adult was that that is actually one of the definitions of human trafficking is exchanging someone out for either a good or a service. Yeah. So in my case, it was free piano lessons. So that was really hard for me to wrap my brain around. But as a child, thinking about it, it taught me that I couldn't trust myself. It also made me think that um, God was okay with what was going on because my dad was a pastor slash missionary, you know, that and I was always told you have to honor the, the man of God. Mm-hmm. Like you would, God would get angry with you or cause problems in your life if you disobeyed yeah. the man of God. So I thought that I was being punished and I thought that this was something that I had brought on myself and that, um, you know, this is just going to be the way I was going to live. It, it I had no, no say, um, it also taught me that I had no power over my own life. And I know that as a child that nine years old, you, your parents should still be able to tell, you no. <laughs> if you're, if you're getting into something you shouldn't be, or maybe you're throwing another a, a rock at another kid, that probably is a bad thing. Right. Your parents should tell you, Hey, stop that. That's not cool. But it did teach me that I had no power and no, no voice of my own. Right. It taught me that I was not allowed to stand up for myself. Um, and so even the abuse at home that was going on, it made me think that, oh, this is okay. This is normal. I I don't have a say over my life.
0: Yeah. So, well, I mean, transitioning into missionary life, yeah. one of the scariest things for me is, I mean, in general, but especially when this kids involved, is like there's a lack of accountability because you're, and again, I'm not, I mean, I worked with a missions organization, but I mean, but then again, the people that I worked for, uh, at least one of them was, I mean, Investing a lot of money. Like, I mean, lack of accountability right. played a role there. Yeah. Um, you know, so did you have any tether to anybody else outside or like anybody who, you know, you could say, Oh, this is happening with my parents or, Oh, this is, or was it totally like, this is our little bubble.
1: So we were actually connected to a military church at one point okay. um, from the time I was probably Eight until 13, we were renting a building. So there was a Air Force base. It was in Yokota, Japan. And there was this church that was primarily geared towards the military, but they would allow us to rent part of their building in the afternoon. So in order to keep a good relationship with them, we would attend some of their church services. So I had some friends there, and honestly, a lot of them saved my life, and probably still don't know that to this day, um, where I was allowed to go to their house. Mm. Um, So it was a safe place for me. Um, But after my dad got into some fights with (laughs) the leadership of that church, um, we left. And then shortly after, um, my grandmother passed away. So we ended up inheriting her house. So we moved from renting a space in the English speaking church to renting another building. And my dad somehow got into another fight with someone else. And then pretty much everyone left. And then there was one family and then we switched to meeting in our apartment. Uh, He made that family upset and they left and Mm -hmm. there was nobody. So I'm what, 15 at this point, there's nobody coming to our church and it's in our apartment.
0: It's just your family devotions basically.
1: Basically, or whatever my dad decided to pick on uh, for the day.
0: That's something yeah. interesting is like, I, I notice these types of guys and I notice them because I've spent most of my life in church culture. I see yeah. it, but they're everywhere. Yeah. But, but within churches specifically, there's a very certain stereotype of man where they go from church to church. They are heavily involved and then they start identifying flaws within those churches mm-hmm. and then moving out. But it's, but their circle gets smaller, but they get more power in their circle. Yes. Like, it sounds like beyond just the anger issues and blowups that can happen with even rational people. Do you feel like your dad was frustrated by not having like more control? Like, did he not like being partnering with someone or being subservient to somebody else?
1: I think that might've had a lot to do with it. Um, He was not very good with any type of constructive criticism. So even if it was in a loving way, um, he would get very upset. Um, I remember there was one sermon that was actually preached at the English speaking church. And, um, I was probably 12 at the time. And there was a pastor that came in and he was talking about how, um, husbands and wives should treat each other. And he said, husbands, your wife is the queen of your home. Treat her like a queen. And he was saying that, you know, um, a lot of times because it was a military church Mm -hmm. and um he was also a retired military guy too and he said you know sometimes you know we think authority and rank and all these things and we come home and we don't know why our kids are in line we've been deployed for six months and why doesn't the wife have it together and he said no you don't treat your family that way Mm -hmm. your wife is the queen of your home you're supposed to respect her and that set my dad off he was so Mm -hmm. angry um and I remember my parents fighting about it. And he said, Well, the wife is not the leader of the home. The husband is. I don't know why he thinks she's some sort of authoritative figure. And like he lost it. Yeah. And even at that made him mad and wasn't even a direct hit at him. It was just a sermon that we were sitting in. Um, so yeah, anytime there was any constructive feedback or, Hey, maybe this isn't cool. Let's talk about this. It was never accepted well. So it yeah. ended up isolating. narrowing it down to yeah. just
0: you this is the part of your story that like, you know, blows my mind that you've shared before, because like I said, I worked with somebody in the missions world that was very duplicitous with a lot of stuff. And I found out after leaving that, you know, so much of that. And then you're like, Oh, I could have got paid a lot more. Um, But, but, but it's one of those things where, I mean, your family was next level, like straight up just scamming. So like, what people would come visit because the only time there was accountability is when other churches would come visit your ministry right it was i mean very rare like very like a missions rare. trip to come meet you because like i remember you shared a story mm-hmm. of your parents had someone that came and visited them oh, and they did an yes. event where like they yes. gave away food right
1: okay so this was years later because okay. i was listening
0: i was like this is crazy like, this yeah. is like a movie like this yeah. is like
1: Uh, Oh Yeah, no, this was years later. So when I was a kid and growing up in the home, anytime a church would say, hey, we'd love to do a mission trip to come see you in Japan, the first thing they would say is, it's so expensive to get from the airport. This is how many fees you're going to pay. So it was always discouraged. Um, So growing up, at least when I was growing up, nobody came to visit. There was not a single person that came in. Now, after I grew up and left the home, um, their missions director actually came to visit them. And um, it was still in the house and there were uh, English students that were there. They're not affiliated with a church whatsoever, (laughs) but um, my parents basically told them, oh, there's these people from America coming.
0: Did your parents do English teaching to help subsidize? Okay.
1: Well, they didn't have anybody pay. So here's where it gets a little complicated. None of their English students pay at all. Um, So then the people there, the local people there think that my parents are amazing people because they're teaching them English for free. What they don't realize is they're being paid a full-time salary to do no mission work. So these English classes, my mom teaches them. My dad has no connection with it. Um, And my mom uses the English Bible as a textbook and she teaches them from there. She'll take pictures of them gathering together and then send it back to the States and say, look at the nice little study. We studied the word of God. If I handed you a Bible in Japanese and said, hey, Eric, what are we learning today? Um, I think you would be here to learn Japanese, not the Bible. right? Right. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, But people in the States would eat that up and they would think, oh, wow, they're doing a Bible study. And it was even named... um, it, it, it's actually called Joyful Ladies English mm-hmm. or Joyful Ladies Study. Um, so whenever you put that in a prayer letter, it sounds like mm-hmm. you have a Bible study, right? So,
0: And they're I not lying no, technically. Technically, yeah.
1: technically, it's still the Bible. Um, so that's what they would do. So people would just think, oh, these are great people. Like they're mm-hmm. teaching me English for free. Meanwhile.
0: So they're doing good visually to the community doing good visually to people back home. Right. But there's a huge disconnect in what absolutely. is actually happening.
1: Absolutely. There's no, no ministry. Work, right. Absolutely none. Um, but they came to the mission board came to visit um, a few years back. I would say it's probably been about five or six years at this point. It's been a while, but they came over to visit and my parents basically told um, the English students to show up on Sunday morning And they said, these Americans will be here and they'd love to meet you. Um, So we're just going to have like a barbecue and you guys can come over. So they come over. My dad puts on a suit. And I, when I explain this to people, people get me like, how do you, my dad has a podium. (laughs) I'm like laughing, trying to explain this. My dad has a podium that has been chopped in half that he puts on top of the kitchen table. Okay. Um. So if they ever need to take photos.
0: He's got the props Yeah, he's got ready. the
1: props for it. I mean, okay. Yeah, he's thought this one out. But he he would bring that out and then take pictures with the people that, sure. that came over. So that was their uh, church Photo event. Photo off, yeah. yeah. church event.
0: So, I mean, going, going back to you, like, there has to be, you keep alluding to like, still figuring out yeah. where you're at, but like, I mean, when did you start realizing this is across the board really off? Because <laughs> like there had to be some party that's like justifying in your mind for years. Yeah. Like, well, this is what the truth is. This is the, you know, my parents are doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Like how quickly did you start going or like what age did you start going? Like, this is fishy. Like this is not Right.
1: So as far as the abuse is concerned, I was probably nine or 10. I went over to a friend's house and my lip was swollen and my dad had punched me that day because I wasn't smiling. So I went over to her house and she saw that it was swollen and she asked if I was okay. And this was a friend on the military base that I was allowed to go visit. And I just said, well, I, I got in trouble. And she just kind of looked at me and I said, well, doesn't your dad ever hit you when you're in trouble? And she said, no, that never happens. That would be a horrible thing for him to do. Yeah. And that's when I started. But you to thought
0: move. that was completely normal. Yeah, like,
1: I thought it was. I just thought, that oh, kids just get punched when <laughs> if you do something. Yeah. Make your parents mad. I don't know why. But so I just assumed that that was normal. And when she told me that, that's when the wheels started turning. Like, Okay, mm. my house is not like everybody else's. And then I was probably oh man, was I thirteen or fourteen? It was when I dropped my sister off at college when we when we did that. It was like two thousand three or two thousand four. But um, we were at a dinner, and there were a bunch of pastors at the table, and they had taken us out to eat. And I can't remember what event it was, but there were a lot of different pastors from different churches there, and there was this one pastor like sitting across from me, and he asked about our church, and I told him the truth. So at this point, we had already moved into our apartment. Nobody was really coming to this church, um, and then we were on furlough in the states. So it's like in between us moving to my grandmother's house. So I told them, I, was, I just said, sometimes it's just our family. That's that's it. You know, um, we used to have people, but they don't really go there anymore. So he looked at me and he just said, oh, okay, so sometimes it's just you and your family. And he started asking more questions. And my mom noticed that we were having a conversation. So she interrupted and she said, oh, no, no, she means kids. Mm -hmm. There's sometimes no kids. It doesn't mean there's nobody there. And I remember looking at her like, wait a minute, where are you going with this? And she told him that we usually had 15 people attending the Mm -hmm. church. And I'm thinking, who? Who Who are these people? Because at that point, um, it was... Me, my two siblings, and my parents. Like, I didn't know we had additional people in this house, so I just looked at her, and I remember confronting her about it later. Um, and of course, it was it was it was not met well uh, uh, later. There were things that happened um, as a response to what I had said, so I learned very quickly not to not to talk about things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they flat out lied to the guy and just said there were fifteen. People, <laughs> unicorns. And <laughs> your,
0: your how, you're how old here?
1: I'm like 13, 13. or 14, roughly. Because it was when I was dropping off my sister in college. And she is, wait, was I 14? Maybe I was 14. It's hard sometimes. It not, those those yeah. years are really <sighs> mushed together. Yeah. yeah. I was definitely a teenager at that point.
0: And that's another kind of formative time of life. like. Yeah. You're like middle school and then you've got like your teenage trying to figure out who you are outside of your family, which yeah. is like, like I feel like middle school is like, who am I in my family? Am I the smart one? Or am I the, whatever am I the, you know, I realized quickly I wasn't, but am I, whatever you are, am I like, who am I in the family? Like how right. do people respond to me? And then like teenagers, like who am I going to be when I leave this family? Right. And like for you, when you saw that, was it just confusion or was there some part of you as you started going toward adulthood that was like resentment of like i'm just living with like these liars you know like yeah. how did you categorize that
1: it was really tough um of course going back to japan after that furlough the abuse just got worse um as soon as my sister left for college my dad got more physically aggressive um my- because he
0: felt safer like is it because he felt like there's less people to step in?
1: I don't know if that was the case. Um, I think he was dealing with a, a lot of my sister moving away. Maybe it was that he didn't have control over her anymore. That could have been mm. what it was. I don't know. It's hard to say. I do know out of out of our, all of us siblings, she was kind of his favorite. Even though he did abuse her, I mean, she went through some terrible yeah. things. But um, she was kind of his favorite. And so when she left, all hell broke loose, and there were just there was no nothing holding him back at that point right. so yeah, yeah.
0: so t- tell me a little bit about like your kind of i guess personal view like did this affect your faith or was mm-hmm. it something where like you just because like i feel like there's one of two like for me mm-hmm. when i started you know and i don't have the similar story at all but like i know for me when i started having things break down about like, this is inconsistent. I think that's the one similarity is like, there's inconsistencies we notice as a kid or as a teenager. Like for me, it was like pulling a thread and then it started all unraveling and, you know, still in a lot of ways keeps unraveling. And then other people I talk to, it's like a category. It's like, yeah, my parents were bad, but I, in my mind was like, well, that's not me. So like, did it affect your faith? Were you, did you rebel at all? Like, how did you act up until like that college age,
1: so I would say I started to become like them. Uh, it was very judgmental. Mm. You kind so of fell
0: in line with. I had to. A bit. Yeah. I had
1: no choice. Um, it was either that or you can't mentally make it. You really yeah. can't. Like, well, you
0: don't have any other perspective. Yeah. Like, without the safety nets of even a sibling, or like, what else? What other perspective can you follow? Like, you haven't seen anything else modeled than yeah. that. Yeah
1: yeah, and as, especially since at that point, so moved back when I was fifteen, my grandma passes away when I'm sixteen, and then we move into her house. Her house was like, oh gosh, an hour, hour and a half away from like the military base and everything that I knew at that point. Um, and even living there was very restricted as far as where we were allowed to go or even leaving the house. like it was it was tough. but as soon as we moved into my grandma's house, I mean, there were some days my mom would scream at me just for taking out the trash. Mm. I had to ask for permission to do that, and I'm 16 years old at this point. so. So there was a lot that I was dealing with, and I remember having conversations with my mom on days things got really bad in the home. I was also homeschooled, which never left the home. You know, I was just home all day or if I did go anywhere, it was with my parents or sometimes I was, and this was what really confused me. I was allowed to go to the park up the road with my brother who was younger than me. I, I don't understand this whole, like yeah. you have to have a man with you everywhere you go. Right. I don't understand. But, um, it, you know, just seeing that I, 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 asked my mom sometimes like, why don't you just leave dad? Why, why do you stay here? Cause I didn't realize that she was also abusive. I kind of felt sorry for her at mm-hmm. that time. Um so I would ask her things like that why don't you just leave dad and and she would say things like the righteous endure suffering and mm-hmm. she would say things like you know we we go through bad things and it's only to make us stronger and then she would pull stories about is it Cory Ten Boom who was in the Holocaust Yeah 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 she would pull stories like that very twisted because that woman went through so much like she you know, I'm not knocking her story. Well, and if you're, find you find yourself
0: know? relating to a Holocaust survivor in terms of your marriage, that's your marriage is not, not in a good place. <laughs> no, yeah. <Right>? definitely not. <laughs>
1: um, so she would say stories like that and say, look, see what they went through. And then they got yeah. out. And I'm thinking, OK, are you saying that that's me? Like, am I, <laughs> do I have to go through more um, things to just like make it? Um, but she would say things like the righteous endure her suffering. And um, so that's, that's what I had ingrained in my yeah. head. I thought that this was what I had to deal with or, or live with. Um, but I did adapt a very judgmental condescending sure. mindset. And then I brought that with me to a very strict religious school. So um, right. 18, I go to a college, um, which I ended up meeting some really amazing people. I met my husband there. Um, I met friends that I will probably be forever friends with there. Um, but I think the people I got very close to were also people who grew up in similar environments. Mm -hmm. We may not have talked about it, but looking back now when we've had those conversations, it's like, that's why I could relate to you. That's why we understood each other.
0: Well, and like I said, like, and none of you would have known it was abnormal because you're all, you know what I mean? So you've got (laughs) this weird shared experience. Like we talk about this on figuring out all the time, like, 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 there's things now that I'll say that I'm like, oh, that's weird. You know, or you don't know until someone's looking at you. <laughs> like you're like, yeah, yeah. I guess. So it's like it's like the story you shared, which is an extreme example, but it's like, it's like, oh, I got in trouble. Like that's in your mind, you're like, I got in trouble. So yeah. this happened. Yeah. You know, same thing like sharing any experience, like, oh, the pastor said this, and people look at you like, what? what? That's that's crazy. Yeah. So starting to realize that because getting outside of that environment was probably Scary, but also freeing in a lot of ways. Like, what was Bible college like? Because, like, it's always crazy to me yeah. when I talk to someone who goes. Like, I was in a very bad, strict, rigid home life, and then college felt like a breath of fresh air. Because, like, even though, like, to most people that went to Bible college, right. they'd be like, "I felt so constricted," you know. <laughs> so, like, what was the yeah. feeling there? Was it a positive thing overall? Oh, yeah, um,
1: no. at least for me, um, I arrived on campus. Um, very underweight. I was anorexic. Mm-hmm. I, I was 72 pounds when I got on that campus. Like, I should not have been walking. Um, But I met people who were kind mm-hmm. and genuinely cared about me and didn't care that I was wearing a turtleneck sweater in 90-degree weather with a huge overcoat. Like, they didn't care. They, they just wanted to be kind to me. And that was the brush breath of fresh air for me. Um, sure. There were, you know, people that weren't so nice. Um, the rules were pretty strict. Would I go back now? Absolutely not. Sure. No. Yeah.
0: Well, many things can be true, right? Like I, I I talk about this all the time. Like my, all of my good memories and bad memories of the first 18 years of my life were within one place. So like, yeah, I have good memories, and I've had people say like, "Well, you had good memories," so it's like mm-hmm. invalidates everything else. But it's like, yeah, main things just like your mom. Your mom was a victim and an abuser. Yeah. There are two things can be true. She still has to bear responsibility right. for and own the abuse side. Yeah. Um, I do want to touch briefly, and again, yeah. as much detail as you want to go into, but you know, you mentioned and you've shared images before on like Instagram of like, like how skinny you were going to college. Like, were the, was was the eating disorder? something fueled by something you were taught? Was it just a side effect of being depressed and not like, were you consciously aware of what you were doing at that time or was it just something that happened?
1: Yes and no. So it's, it's very complicated, especially when sure. you're talking about an eating disorder because for different people it can mean different right. things. Um, for me, I think I developed an eating disorder probably way before then. Mm. Um, when I was 12, wow. my mom made fun of my weight. And, um, diets were highly encouraged in our home. Sure. You know, if you're not skinny, um, then you're not good enough. Um, my sister was also treated that way, which later she discovered she has a, um, autoimmune disease like that. That's what she was going through. And she was met with criticism and ridiculed for her body. And uh, I was the same way, like I hit puberty and gained some weight and, Um, My mom made fun of me for that. Which is just normal. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. just normal in our household, you know. So um, I started going on diets at 12. And then um, when we moved into my grandmother's house and the abuse got really bad, I was on somewhat of a diet at that point too. I don't remember a time I wasn't after puberty. Wow. But um, I started going into it. And then I stopped eating at dinner because it was just so painful to sit there and listen to my dad yell and scream and um, making dinner time as brief as possible was the best thing for me. Um, But then I started noticing the pain that came with um, restrictive eating uh, to the point where um, not to get like graphic or anything, but basically there's like, um, it's hard to describe. It's like a burning feeling in your back Mm. when you've hit starvation mode for so long. And that became my source of comfort. So for me to go to sleep at night with that feeling was the only way I could fall asleep. Um, it kept my mind away from the emotional pain. Mm-hmm. I, and I could focus on just being in physical pain versus what was going on around me. Of course, there was still physical abuse going on, but right. you know, just all it's the a things, distraction or, yeah, it was, or
0: it's a something that you can control too, yeah. which is. You know, like I mean, that's self harm in general. Was, like that's yeah. what people with cutting or thing like it's a pain you can control, yeah. and um, you know. And again, like you said, there is partly it's intentional, partly not understanding why it's yeah. happening. How how long did it take? I mean, college is like you said; it was probably healing in a lot of ways. Being around good people yeah. that are kind was good. When did you realize, like? okay, I'm not in a good place, you know, cause that, yeah. that probably, I'm assuming took a while if, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I had plenty of people telling me, you "Hey, know, yeah, you don't look so great. You, were, you know, oh, thanks. Uh, that makes me feel better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel great about myself. Um, you know, I had a, an aunt that was, um, very concerned for me mm-hmm. and, I went and stayed at her house. This was pre-college. I went to stay at her house for an afternoon. My parents were in the living room with her. And I don't know what I was doing, but I was like out in the yard. And then I came in the house and she was, she was crying Mm -hmm. and she was begging them to, to have me get help because Mm -hmm. she knew where I was headed. And she had seen that, I guess one of her granddaughter's classmates had either died or had had to go through rehab um, because of it and she was saying please don't let this happen to her like she's not doing well um, and my parents of course dismissed it and I ended up asking them if I could go to a rehab facility mm-hmm. because I knew where I was headed um, of course they said no and they said that it was because of my sin um, that I was going through this so once I um, start started living um, not simply uh, then <laughs> this would also go away as well yeah so, um, I was starting to, to wonder if that wasn't true. Cause I was like, I've been praying for a very long time, yeah. um, that everything around me would stop, whether it was the physical abuse, mental abuse, or right. even the fact that I was so out of control at this point, I couldn't even control my own eating disorder. Like it started out, yeah. you know, somewhat being able to control it. And then now to this point where like, I, I have no control over myself, like right. I've lost everything. Um, so I asked them if I could go to a rehab facility. Of course, they said no. And then I went to college, and I, I knew that I wasn't doing well, for one. Like, I hadn't had a menstrual period in, like, months. Mm-hmm. Um, which, sorry, very graphic. But um, I knew I wasn't doing well. And I actually had a friend in college who was—I forget what major she was, but she was taking some sort of class— where she had to do like a physical and she took me with her. I don't know if this was intentional. I've never asked her about this, but she took me with her and we saw the nurse and the nurse took my height and weight. And she said, Hey, just wanted to let you know that you are currently not in um, a healthy range for your height and age. Um, And for a woman, your age, she gave me like basically the metrics of what I should be looking at And that kind of woke something up inside of me because I was like, oh, I didn't realize I was that far off, like that, you know, not doing so great. Um, So that started to make me think about that. Um, Recovery was a very long process. Um, I I dipped in and out of it multiple times. Um, I was doing really well until, I forget, it was it my sophomore year? I think it was my sophomore year yeah. Sophomore year I end up going back for the summer and I end up relapsing again. Of course. No no wonder why. Um, but yeah, it was, it was little moments. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like this big aha awakening. It was little moments that kind of pushed me towards recovery and realizing that I'm, I deserve to get help and it was okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And did that all tie in with like all the other areas like I'm going to live differently than my family. Or was that something that after you got that solved, you were able to focus on the deeper traumas wow. and, and cause again, like if nothing ever happens in a linear way, know. like, but I mean, obviously now you recognize how bad it was with your yeah. parents or how bad. like, was that just part of that healing work where that came into play? Or was it a, once you solved the eating disorder, then it was like, here's the other layer yeah. to it.
1: I think in the back of my mind, I always knew it was wrong. What was going on? I mean, of course, when I was really little, I had no concept of that until I went to my friend's house and she was like, no, this is not okay. (laughs) Um, But I think, I think I was trying to still cover for them. Um,
0: And do you, did you do that because you felt bad for them or was it, was it scary for you to think, was it scary for you to think that you were, like you had put the time into something that wasn't real. Like, what was the, Ooh. you know? Yeah, that's. I'm a asking question. very easy questions. Right? Oh, <laughs> no. that's, that's a no. really good way no. of putting it, though. Because
1: yeah.
0: um, it know, is like it's yeah. like sometimes I think people justify because they're like, I spent 20 years in this. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be wrong for 20 years. Yeah. No.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that definitely had a part to play in that for sure. Um, I, I, I think probably around. My junior, sophomore year of college, I I was starting to realize that I didn't want to be anything like what my parents were doing. Um, And then it wasn't until hmm, leaving college, because I didn't graduate from there initially. I ended up graduating later with an interdisciplinary degree. But after leaving college, I think I started to realize that My parents were not changing. I I think in my head, I had developed this narrative like, oh, they're going to become.
0: They're growing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Because I'm growing, right? Because I'm learning things. So they must be growing too. And there's no way that someone can stay the same. And all these narratives in my head. So I leave college and they end up disowning me um, because I don't have enough money to go back. So um, they, uh, yeah, disown me. And I felt like it was my fault. But I also had good friends at that point who were like, no, that's not normal. Like, people don't just do that. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, um, Seth and I were engaged at this point, too, as well. Which, that, that was also a whole other roller coaster. Like, trying to date with all these
0: yeah.
1: people telling you what to do um, on the other side of the world. Which, I don't know why I gave them that much control now that I think about it. I could have literally done anything with my life, but... It's that uh, mental.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you don't know that. Yeah. You, you, you really don't. <laughs> I'm it, like, they yeah. could fly
1: over here any minute. Yeah. Um, but after leaving college and then they disowned me because I couldn't go back, um, I was working as a waitress and my dad had a lot of things to say about that because it wasn't good enough and um, I was just making ends meet. So they disowned me and then um, I ended up applying to become a flight attendant for Delta so I got in as a um, interpreter because I speak Japanese and English. I get in, I graduate, and all of a sudden they want to be back in my life again. And then I started to realize there's a little pattern going on here. Um, unless I could give them something of value, I was no value to them. So realizing that helped me to kind of go in a direction where I was allowing myself to ask those questions. Like, is this really okay? Yeah. Um, are these really? Safe people are these good people, mm. and if not, then it's okay to admit that. Um, but it took me years to finally come to a point where I was just like, you know, enough is enough. Like this is not okay. Um, I wish that aha moment came sooner, but truthfully, it didn't happen until 2017, and that mm. was when they disowned me for the very last time, and I was not. Um, I was not doing well, and I ended up going to therapy, mm. um, and then that's when I started really. Healing and growing. So, I would say, as far as being able to heal, that hasn't happened until like the last few years. Yeah. But there's definitely been little moments here and there that's kind of pushed me towards that direction. So,
0: 2017, disowning you for another time. And what was the reason for that? Was it something similar to the call, or was it just a. You don't have to share it if you don't want <laughs> you know, to. I've,
1: I really tried to make sense of this. I really have. Um, I, you know, when I first started therapy, I had a really good therapist in Florida, and she even looked at me and said, "That's an interesting reason." Um, right. It, it, <laughs> I went to Japan um, in 2017 because my dad was really sick. Mm. Um, he had collapsed, and um, he was taken to a hospital by ambulance. Turns out, he had a bleeding ulcer. Mm. So um, of our siblings, I was the only one that could fly back and see what was going on Um, just because, you know, days off, that type of thing. Um, So I flew over there to see what was going on, see how he was doing. Um, Of course, I had tried to think that the ministry situation had changed because my mom said some things over Facebook that made me think that things were changing. Of course, you know, still the same. I was like, yeah. oh, wait.
0: You're just reading her version yeah. of things again. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's not cool. Um, but I saw my dad in the hospital, and he was really happy to see me. We had some really good conversations, and I'm thinking, oh, this is going great. Maybe we're yeah. healing. Because um, I'd spent, you know, a good amount of time trying to make this relationship work. Um, and even when I was a flight attendant and I would fly to Japan, I would meet up with them and I thought, okay, we're, we're working our way towards something good right. here. Yeah. So when I saw him in the hospital, he was really excited to see me. We had some really good conversations. Um, but then I realized that there were, there were things in the home that were putting his health in jeopardy. Right. Um, for one, my mom has a, and, and this is not to diminish anyone that has struggle with this because to me this isn't a joke um but my mom has a severe hoarding addiction and to the point where the only food available in the house was things that were not good for my dad's health yeah and the doctor even told my mom he needs to change his diet because he yeah. has high blood pressure he's getting older he's a bleeding ulcer this is internal stuff these are things that can be managed so, um, the doctor even asked him, do you smoke because his blood pressure was so, it was high. so bad? Yeah. It was, it was terrible. And he said, no, I don't smoke. Um, you know, thinking about it, I, I can see a couple of reasons why he could be suffering from bad health due to, you know, um, not taking care of the anger issues. I, I've been there before myself and I know what anger can do to your blood pressure and it's, it's bad. Um, so there's that. And then of course the diet situation, he doesn't have proper nutrients in the home So I confronted my mom about it, and my sister and my brother all agreed that they needed some help, um, whether it was having someone in the the house a few times a month to help them out or even seeing a therapist just because things had gotten pretty rough. Um, So I came back to the States um, fully expecting things to go well. I helped my mom clean the house. Um, she'd even promised me she would see a counselor, mm-hmm. um, and we'd agreed upon that. So I come back, uh, my sister, my brother and I have a conversation and then we spend two weeks to really think about all this. And then of course, all three of us were praying about it and thinking about what resources would be the best way to, um, I wasn't trying to make them feel bad, you know, um, So we ended up getting on a Skype conversation, and um, things got pretty bad really quick. Apparently, my mom had taken things out of the trash, and the whole house was a disaster when my dad came home, and he said that I had come over there to cause problems, Mm. and he immediately went into telling us that um, we shouldn't worry about when he was dying, because the inheritance would be split three ways, so he was accusing me of wanting to watch him die, and therefore money, which um I really don't <laughs> I don't want any of that i mean, I don't believe in um curses per se, but um, if there's any type of money that is cursed, I do not want any of that, <laughs> yeah, right. considering how it was attained, Made, yeah uh so. You know, I, I was really shocked by what they had to say. Um, and because the conversation got so bad, I, I did have to remove myself from that call. But before that happened, um, my dad made it very, very clear that he did not want me or my sister in his life anymore. Mm. Um, we asked him to confirm in both languages just to make sure we didn't hear him wrong. And he said, Yep, don't need you guys anymore. My mom just sat there not nodded her head wow. and I got off the call and had a panic attack. Um, and of course my mom tried to pretend like nothing had happened. Yeah. Uh, very passive aggressive. There were still Facebook comments, which, which was really weird to me. You know? So I reached out to her privately. Um, and I just told her, um, I basically laid down some boundaries as far as what was appropriate, what was not appropriate. Um, I was not there for this, but um, from what I understand, my sister cut off her camera and there were some things said about her. So um, again, I wasn't there for this, but I um, reached out to my mom via private message and I just said, hey, you guys made it very clear that you don't want us in your life. I understand that there were some things said about my sister. So until um, you can apologize to her, I'd prefer you not leave comments in public unless you can have this conversation in private, because to me, this doesn't seem genuine and I don't appreciate that
0: more for appearances. Like the yeah. others. I
1: mean, there were sponsoring churches that were yeah. viewing all of our Facebooks um, who had no idea what was going on. So uh, after that, I did not hear anything from her. I think I might have gotten one or two passive aggressive emails. Um, like since this has been, Gosh, it's been over five years now, but in the five-year time span, I might have gotten two passive-aggressive emails and haven't responded. Um, don't really see the reason yeah. I should. Um, but that, that pushed me to a really, really dark place. Uh, I was suicidal, and um, all of 2017, I was really trying to numb that out, like I'd always done, you know, find something to keep yourself busy, try not to think. Um, I put myself into volunteering, which is a good thing, but so much so that I didn't have time to even think about anything.
0: It was another coping yeah, mechanism. It which, yeah,
1: it was. And I hate to admit that because what I was doing was good, yeah. but my intentions were wrong. Right. And it was just me trying to numb the pain. I don't think I even realized it then. Yeah. But looking back, that's what was going on. And in December, I found myself in a psychiatric facility. Um, I admitted myself because I knew where my mind was going and i had my poor husband like he was too scared to go to work because he was afraid he'd come home and i wouldn't be there um so i checked myself in and um there was a doctor there who um told me and she was just very understanding and I, th- I think at that point, I knew that therapy was okay. Um, I had seen a, a Christian counselor previous to this, not really a, a therapist, but I think there was still a part of me that was latching on to medication is bad. You know, um, seeing a psychiatrist is bad. All these things that I was taught as a kid were still very prevalent in my mind. And she told me, she said, look, I, I know that you're a faith-based person. I know you pray and and that's good, but it takes all legs in your chair to, to, to be stable. And mm. right now you're only leaning on like one or two. So I would highly recommend if you can, please see a psychiatrist. I, As much as you've been lovely to speak to, I don't want to see you here ever again. And that's what she told me. And it kind of made me laugh a little bit, but um, she was right. You know, I, I had kind of put this weight, this pressure on myself to kind of just make it Without seeking professional help. Um, so I ended up having to tell my boss what happened and told him where I was. Um, I wasn't there for very long, but I, I still had to tell him, you know, what was going on. And he was very understanding and he connected me with our works um, employee assistance program. Yeah. So I got in touch with a licensed therapist and a psychiatrist. And yeah. uh, it was January
0: 2018. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I mean, obviously, like, going to therapy once doesn't change your life. No. <laughs> um, it's a process and I'm sure it's a process that you probably not an end in sight. like no. you're gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be constantly learning and like um, and and growing and things like that. but you know kind of as we get near the end, like I, I always I try to be careful you know how I ask these questions because I never want to make people who feel like they resonate with where you were with the story you just told. Mm-hmm they at that moment right now. I don't want them to think that like they're a lesser person cause they're not oh, yeah. enlightened or they're not whatever the word no. someone could throw at them. What does healing and recovery mean to you? What is it? What does it look like? Cause it's, I think we tend to look at like you're either in a bad place or a good place. Mm-hmm. And it's not like that. Yeah. You know, there's days it's like your physical health. There's days going to the gym sucks yeah. worse than other days, you yeah. know? And then there's, I want pizza, today. you know, Let's right. Yeah. And, home. <laughs> and, and, and so there's all these things, but what has recovery meant to you over the last couple of years? Because it's hard to picture, you know, the person that I know now, it's yeah. hard to picture that just a few years ago, you felt completely hopeless. Cause like yeah. now you're sharing these stories, you're talking and, and, and sharing so openly and in it, I mean, from all outside perspectives in a really good place, yeah. you know, um, what does that look like for you? What is, what does it look like moving forward?
1: Yeah. I think healing to me being can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> words mixed backwards. Okay. Um, I yes. Think,
0: words make backwards. Yes, <laughs> they do. Oh
1: gosh. Um, no. I think healing for me just means being honest with yourself <laughs> With exactly where you're at now, like in this present moment, not where do you want to be? I mean, it's good to have that insight, yeah. but I think it's being honest and and vulnerable with yourself um, as to where you're currently at. And I think that was the biggest struggle that I had to face was being real. Yeah. Um, you know, I I grew up thinking that I had to hide everything or. I had some sort of very Christianese phrase to cover up every every emotion. Like right. God is good all the time. That's nice, hmm. but it doesn't mean that
0: doesn't explain what I'm feeling exactly. right now.
1: Right, and you know I think a lot of Christians are afraid of mm-hmm. that. They're afraid of being real mm-hmm. to to say what they're really going through. And I think a lot of it has to do with either versus being taken out of context or ways that they were raised, this almost sense of toxic positivity, you know, ha- mm. being happy all the time and everything's good all the time. No, everything's not good all the time. And I think it's okay to admit that. Um, I'm actually starting therapy again mm. next week. Um, since I've moved here, I had a therapist. Things didn't work out. Schedules didn't work out. And mm. I'm, I have a new one that's I hope works out but you know, I don't think there's like you were saying, I don't think there is an end in sight.
0: But, but that's yeah. the thing is like going, going, we were raised, I mean, I was raised, my family didn't really talk about therapy and stuff, but like from the leaders I was around, like youth pastor and stuff, it was like people in a bad place go to therapy or counseling, you know? And it's like, I talked with a trauma therapist who's been on the show, Claire um, Horner, who I talk about all the time. And she told me, she's like, when you go see a therapist, the first question should be, what therap or do you see a therapist? Because mm-hmm. every therapist that you're seeing should be seeing a therapist, yeah, you <laughs> know? And um and we look at it as like this sign of like defeat, like or like this it's not. It's like it's just like you work on anything else. It's yeah. working on your mental health. Yeah. Um I, I wanna ask this one kind of last-ish question. I'm yeah. sure we'll have one more button on this, okay. but but How do you balance because like you talk, you're very positive. I would say, you know, when you're talking like you're, you know, you can joke about certain things or you can be a positive voice on a lot of things, but also you embrace the bad and face it head on with your posts, with your conversation, like one-to-one. What do you see as the difference between admitting that something bad happened or acknowledging something bad happened without sitting in the bad because like a few years ago it seems like you didn't know how to not sit in it like there was this toxicity that you were in and rightfully so like by yourself you shouldn't like there were no tools to get past that how do you go about balancing acknowledging the bad things that are happening the really sucky things in life Mm. without you know without just dwelling in that to where it's bringing you back down
1: you mean like being stuck, or yeah, like
0: being stuck? Because I think, like for example, like situation situation with your parents, you acknowledge that's bad, but like you could sit there for the rest of your life and go, "I'm just waiting for them to change, and then my life can be good." Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. how do you balance that being positive without it being this false positivity, mm-hmm. or acknowledging there's bad without I can't see any good. You know, there's a there's a weird balance there.
1: Yeah, um, I think a lot of it is just. Again, back to the honesty um, mm. of seeing seeing both things, but also being patient. Um, I I think a lot of times people think stuff like this happens overnight. It's like oh, I'm good, you know. Yeah.
0: If only, <laughs> if yeah. only, yeah, that'd be great,
1: yeah. you know. I mean, I'm 32 and I'm still dealing with trauma from when I was nine. And that's a long time to be dealing with that, yeah. you know. Um, so it, it's not something that happens overnight and. I think it's genuinely okay to have time where you sit in that pain Mm -hmm. and and you think, Oh, this is terrible. Like this is (laughs) this, there's nothing good about this and there is no positive on this at all. And I think it's okay to, to feel that way. I think a lot of people who, um, who are Christians, um, or, or have faith as their background, think they can cheat the system Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's the stages of grief they think they don't have to go through anger you're going to go through it you're either going to go through it by doing healthy things like going to therapy and talking it out or having exercises your therapists give you to work through anger in a healthy way or it's going to come out on your kids or your people at work you're going to end up micromanaging them treating them like garbage like that's that's another way or yourself yeah exactly or self-harm like
0: Someone's going to, there's, it's not victimless. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no,
1: someone is going to get hurt and it's either you or someone you love or yeah. someone you're very close with. And I think people don't realize that until it's too late. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's, that's happened to me multiple times where um, the first time I, I went to counseling, again, I didn't go to a licensed therapist till years mm-hmm. later, but um, I did go to a Christian counselor a few years after we were married for anger because I lashed out at my husband multiple times. Um, it was, he was either trying to like tap me on the shoulder or like give me a hug or like one time it was like a playful swat on the behind and it should not have triggered me, but it did. Um, and it never triggered me before, but something yeah. happened in that moment where a flip, a, a switch flipped and I lost it. And like just became very aggressive and angry and started screaming. And months later I went to counseling for that. But even with that, you know, somebody was suffering. Yeah. My husband was, right. you know, and, and like people at work didn't know that because I kept it all in. And mm-hmm. then when I came home, it was like this time bombs exploded. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, being real, being honest and allowing yourself to feel grief, mm-hmm. to feel anger, feel sadness. Um, no, it, it, it doesn't have to control your life, at least not forever. But I, I think if, if anybody should give grace, it should be Christians and Mm -hmm. it it should be the people that talk about grace the most should be the ones to be understanding when a victim comes forward and says, I'm, I'm just angry. I just want to punch a wall. Like those are, those are normal emotions in response to abuse. Um, but I think when we try to bottle those up is we don't heal. We just, we just stay stuck. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. No. Um, Dr. Jessica Taylor, um, posted or wrote in her book, posted her (laughs) wrote in her book. Um, you know, there's no abnormal reaction to an abnormal Mm -hmm. circumstance. You know, I don't know if that's her quote or if that's someone else, but that to me, like when people go like, why is someone so mad or why is someone's going about it? I'm like, just look at the situation, you know, like there's a, and there's a process. And like, again, there's going to be things that are messy. Yeah but it's a normal response to a messy, messy situation. Um, But I I really appreciate you like showing both sides of that because I think there's a lot of people that do similar work to what you do or they work in similar things to I do with advocacy and they paint this like you can be healed or, you know, you could be better or you can Mm -hmm. be better. You can be this, you can be that. And I love that you share posts and messages and do conversations where you talk about the times it's really hard. And then the times where like this is when it's really helping. And because I think it's, it's discouraging when you see people like who look like they have it all together all the time. (laughs) And then they're like, you could be like me if you'll do this. And it's like, I can't even imagine that, you know, like that, that road.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. I just immediately had a thought. Somebody reached out to me. It was, it was an MLM thing. And (laughs) Read that I was struggling through depression, and they told me that there was a supplement I could take, and I right. was like, "Thank you,
0: perfect, perfect, healed, <laughs> healed, miracles." No, that's funny. Well, uh, look, I, I mean, I could talk for real for a long time, um, and it's really stupid that we haven't talked in a year in person. Um, but if you could leave. The person listening to this—I mean, we've covered a lot of really good stuff. You could leave people listening with like one message, like for the people—if you're talking to Asami from, you know, four years ago or five years ago—what oh, yeah. would you? What do you wish someone would have told you?
1: It's okay that you're angry, and I'm not going anywhere. I—I mm. th- I think that's—I mean, my husband did tell me that. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's what I would have needed to hear the most. Right. Is it's okay to be angry? It really is.
0: No. No, I think that's really good for people to hear. And I think a good place, a good place to close the dog's agree, But, um, <laughs> but no, I really do. I appreciate you and I hope it's not the last time we talk in not. general, but definitely, <laughs> and hopefully not only behind microphones, but yeah. thank you for sharing that. Cause I think people really need to hear it. Um, if people want to connect with you on like social, yeah. they want to see all the stuff I'm talking about, all the posts I'm talking about, what's the <laughs> other no, out there. What's the, what's the best place for them to do that?
1: Um, the best place for them to do that is probably Instagram, um, or my website. Um, my Instagram is mental health isami. And then my website is just isamidane.com. Awesome. So either one of those would be great.
0: Cool. Yeah. If you're listening, be sure to check out the link in the show notes, connect with isami there. Um, there's a lot of really great posts, resources, things like that. Um, definitely worth checking out, but thanks again for, for joining me and, uh, Hopefully we won't wait another year. <laughs> Hopefully not.
1: <laughs> Thanks awesome. for having me. So yes. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on Preacher